was about to ask, is this some kind of joke or something? Some kind of message about the quality of my sermons? But glad to see the garbage can taken away. Glad to have you at Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're happy you've come to worship with us. Now, all of us are motivated by different things, and some of those things are good, and some of those things are bad. Some of us are motivated by praise. When we hear words of encouragement or when we hear compliments, that motivates us to work harder, do more, try to get to that next level of whatever it is that we're doing. Some people are motivated by reward. If we really want to accomplish something, the best way we can motivate ourselves to do it is if we convince ourselves that once we've reached that goal, then I get to make that big purchase, or then I get to go on that trip. Some of us are motivated by shame. When we're made fun of because we're bad at something, nothing else motivates us more to improve than hearing that. Related, some people are motivated by being the underdog. When somebody tells us that we can never do something, that we'll never be good at something, all of a sudden we're motivated to get better. And some of us are motivated by a fear of failure. We can't stand the thought of falling short, and so we will do whatever it takes in order to succeed. Again, all of us are motivated differently, and the best coaches and teachers and managers and mentors are those people who find ways to motivate the people that they're leading. And each person is motivated differently. But the best coach is the one who finds a way to work with each individual person, motivate them each on an individual level. That way the whole team can reach a common goal. Now so far in this sermon series on Hebrews, we've seen the author of Hebrews somewhat taking the role of motivator. At times he's trying to motivate his people to long-term faithfulness and long-term devotion to Jesus. Last week, the way he did this was that he reminded them that Jesus is their great high priest. He says that Jesus is the high priest who passed through the heavens. He is the Son of God. Jesus is perfect in righteousness. He's sinless. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. And the author makes it clear that in light of all these things, Jesus inspires us to hold fast our confession, even in the face of of obstacles. And because of what this high priest has done, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. He's unlike any priest before him, and there's no other priest that would come after him. Now this week we again see the author author motivating his people to faithfulness, motivating them to devotion, but he does it in several different ways in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. He motivates them by discussing good things like the faithfulness of God and the confidence that he has in these people that he's writing to. But he also motivates them using tough love, sometimes rebuking them, and even offering a stern warning. So with that, open to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. This will be located on page 862. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read Hebrews chapter 5, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, every single one of us who calls your son Jesus Lord, who calls your son Jesus Savior, God, we want to be faithful. 
But as we've talked about the past several weeks, faithfulness is hard. Faithfulness is a challenge. Things constantly creep up that test our faithfulness, that make us wonder how much longer we can hold on, make us wonder if we can possibly get through this life clinging to you. And God, I pray that these past few weeks and this morning as well, that we would find comfort in your word, that we'd find confidence in your word, that we'd find motivation in your word to hold fast our confession, that we would not forget that it is because of you and because of what your son did that we can approach your throne with confidence, that we can ask you to give us the strength to be faithful. And God, I pray that Whatever situation we might find ourselves in this morning, some of us in spiritual valleys and some of us on spiritual mountaintops, I pray that every single one of us would just make a goal of being faithful through the ups and downs. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, our great high priest. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, the past several weeks we've talked about challenges that followers of Jesus face. Challenges that test our devotion, that test our faithfulness. We've talked about things like persecution. That is very much a reality for the people who receive this letter, even if we're somewhat removed from it. We've talked about temptation to sin, how we constantly find ourselves wrestling with temptation even after we're saved, and how that can be a challenge to our faithfulness. And we've talked about the wear and tear of time and the wear and tear of life that can often make us wonder just how much longer we can hold on to Christ. Now in these verses, we see another challenge of faithfulness that the audience is wrestling with. It's a challenge of faithfulness that many of us find ourselves wrestling with, maybe at this very moment. And that challenge is spiritual laziness. Now, sometimes spiritual laziness is passive and unintentional. We don't mean to be spiritually lazy. I mean, sometimes life just gets in the way, things get a little bit hectic, and one day we look up and we realize that we've completely neglected our walk with Christ. We have spent very little time in scripture. We spent very little time in prayer. We've maybe even isolated ourselves from our fellow believers. Sometimes it's passive. It's unintentional. And we realize it at the very last moment. But other times, spiritual laziness isn't passive and isn't unintentional. Sometimes our spiritual laziness can be active and rebellious and intentional. Maybe we've experienced disappointment with God in some way. That unanswered prayer seems to really bother us. Or that unexplainable suffering. Or that painful loss gets us to the point where we would just honestly prefer to ignore our faith for a while. We'd rather just give God the silent treatment because we're disappointed. 
Maybe our spiritual laziness is because we have sin in our lives that we'd honestly just prefer not to confront. We'd rather not deal with it. And so we avoid the things that remind us of it. We avoid scripture. We avoid prayer. We avoid fellow believers because we don't want to own up to the sin in our lives. Now, I'm sure many of us can relate to these times of spiritual laziness, both the passive and the unintentional, as well as the rebellious and the intentional. We're all susceptible to those times. And speaking of these people's spiritual laziness, the author of Hebrews refers to them as dull of hearing. That's a pretty rough phrase to use. He says that by now they should have become teachers of spiritual truths, but instead they've spun their wheels in their spiritual laziness. And as a result of this, because they're so dull of hearing, he says they need to relearn their spiritual ABCs. They need to relearn the basic principles of God. He compares them to babies. He says they need milk, not solid food. Now when you hear words like that, dull of hearing, and calling them babies and children and not mature, what do you think type of motivation tactic the author's using here? Well, if we're really honest with ourselves, the author seems to be using shame to motivate these people. You know, sometimes with Javen, if he's acting up, if he's not behaving, we'll look at Javen and we'll say, Javen, you're not a baby, are you? And of course, Javen will respond with, no, I'm not a baby. And so that is the idea. We want to motivate him to grow up, act like a toddler, not a baby. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And as the author calls these people babies, perhaps he's hoping that they will respond in the same way that Javen does. Maybe he's hoping that when they hear him calling them spiritual babies, they'll step back and say, now wait a minute, I'm no baby. I don't want to be a spiritual baby. And maybe they'll be motivated to mature. Now, if we're honest, some of us here may be spiritual babies, when in reality, we ought to be teachers. Spiritual laziness may have stunted our growth. Now, we have no excuses not to be growing. I mean, we have the Bible in front of us. We have the Holy Spirit that God has given us, who's shaping us and transforming us. And we have community, fellow believers around us. And yet, we're stunted. Now, if that's you, maybe you'll be motivated by this the same way the original audience was. Maybe you'll sit there and say, now, wait a minute. I'm no baby. Who are you to call me a baby? And maybe that will cause you to cast aside your spiritual laziness. Let's pick up in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, continuing the same theme. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So here he continues that same theme and tells the audience that it's time for them to grow up. It's time to leave the baby stuff behind. It's time to forget about the elementary teachings. You already know these things. You know about repentance from sin. You've done that. You've admitted your sin to God. You've admitted your sin to yourself. You've admitted your sin to those around you. And you've repented of that. You've got that down. You've done that. And sure, you continually do that throughout your life as a follower of Christ. But you've made that initial repentance. Been there, done that. 
You know about faith in God. You've placed faith in God, the one who sent this great high priest to die on the cross for you. You understand that. You've learned about the washings and the laying on of hands. If we're talking about Jewish practices, these people know that these things don't really matter anymore, that you've been washed by the blood of Christ. You've been saved by God's grace. You don't have to continually wash yourself over and over. If he's referring to baptism, he's basically saying you already know what that means. You've done that. You've been baptized. You've been buried and raised with Christ. You're a new creation now. You've been there, done that too. You know about the resurrection of Jesus. And you know about eternal judgment, heaven and hell. You know all these things. You've heard all these things. You understand all these things. And all those things are core. They are basic. They are absolutely central to our faith. You don't want to neglect them. You don't want to just completely abandon them. But at the same time, it's time for you to move on to deeper and more challenging things. It's time to leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ. Still hold them dear, but move on to deeper things. Now for us... That may mean spending less time sitting around and talking about the beliefs and the doctrines that we hold dear, and maybe more time focusing on how to take those teachings and take those doctrines and actually live them out. To see what it means to be followers of Christ, not just who hold beliefs and doctrines in our heads, but actually live out these doctrines in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships. Maybe that's what going deeper looks like for you. Now, the problem with the author telling these people to grow up is that not everyone responds well when they're told to grow up. Some people respond with, well, I don't want to grow up. Many people would prefer to just stay babies or children forever. They would prefer to stay in their comfort zones. That's what they know. That's what they're familiar with. They're perfectly fine with being spiritual babies. But the problem with that is it's not natural to be a spiritual baby forever. Babies are meant to grow up. We're all babies at some point, both physically and spiritually, but we don't stay like that forever. If you've spent time around a baby, it's not long before they want to lift their heads up on their own. And then they want to eat real food. And then they want to scoot And then they want to crawl, and then they want to stand, and then they want to walk, and then they want to run. Babies want to stop just making noises and eventually want to form actual words and form sentences at some point. Babies want to grow. Babies want to progress. Babies want to mature. And if time passes and you have a baby and you take that baby to the doctor and that baby is not wanting to walk and not wanting to crawl and not wanting to use words and not wanting to move on to real food, the doctor will probably look at you at some point and say, you know, I think there's something wrong here. Because this baby should be growing. This baby should be maturing. And yet none of those things are happening. And if the baby's not growing, there's something off. Now, again, we're all babies at some point. We all have spiritual growth spurts. We all have spiritual dry spots. Sometimes we feel like we're growing by leaps and bounds, and sometimes we feel like we're completely spinning our wheels. Some of us start at a very, very low threshold of spiritual growth and have a lot of room to grow. And some of us start a little bit higher up. 
Some people find themselves in environments where it's very easy to grow. And some people find themselves in environments where it's very hard to grow. All those things are true. Discipleship is a challenge. There are ups and downs. It's like a roller coaster. But what if we're not talking about just a dry spot? What if we're not just talking about a valley? What if we're talking about an extended time of immaturity? What if we're talking about followers of Christ whose long-term lives are characterized by complete and utter lack of growth? What do we do with that? What about people who are spiritual babies who should have grown up by now, and yet they appear perfectly content with their immaturity and perfectly content with their lack of growth? What do we do there? That leads us to our next passage verses 4 through 8, a stern warning about those who refuse to grow up. Starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now I want to keep this passage in context. We're talking about faithfulness, The natural progression of believers growing up and maturing, becoming spiritual adults, even though they were once spiritual babies. However, with this passage, there is some significant debate that we can't ignore, that we can't just skirt around. The debate with a passage like this is this. Can a true, genuine believer, someone who has placed their faith in Christ, someone whose heart has been made new by God's grace, someone who has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit... Can someone like that be so immature to the point that they lose their salvation? Now, some Christians read a passage like this and say that, yes, they can lose their salvation. People have free will and they can abandon Christ if they so choose. Other Christians do not believe this passage supports that conclusion. In combination with other scripture, they would argue that someone who loses their salvation was never truly saved to begin with. Now, with this debate, both sides have valid points. There are believers on either side of the issue in this room right now. So we're not going to spend time trying to discover which side is right. I don't think that'd be very productive. However, one thing that could be productive is if we could discover what this passage teaches that maybe both sides of that debate can agree on. And I have two things I'd like to propose. Number one, something we can both agree on is this. True conversion occurs once. True conversion occurs once. Now, for those who do not believe a follower of Christ can lose their salvation, this reiterates the point that we made a few seconds ago. If someone loses their salvation and then returns, it means that they were never really saved in the first place. In reality, that second conversion 
is actually their first conversion. Now, here's why things get a little bit strange. For those who believe that one can be genuinely converted and then lose their salvation, this passage appears to be teaching that that person will not return to Christ. The phrase that the author of Hebrews uses is that it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, as you can see, both sides of that debate have to wrestle with some serious ramifications of what this passage means for them, what this passage teaches, the idea of true conversion only occurring once. And the question also would have to be asked for the spiritual babies out there, if you're a spiritual baby and you've been perfectly content with that, the question must be asked, have you experienced true conversion? Have you really believed? Have you really placed your faith in Christ? Because a lack of growth, a lack of maturity, a long-term, consistent spiritual valley, that's a problem. This passage appears to teach that true conversion occurs once. This passage appears to teach that salvation is through Christ alone, something we can both agree on either side of the debate. If, hypothetically, a person is genuinely saved and then abandons their faith, this seems to teach they will have nowhere else to go for salvation. It's like the person who is never satisfied. Because if Christ is not enough for you in eternity, then nothing else will be enough for you in eternity. If you fully experience the grace of God, if your heart is made new, if you are washed by the blood of Christ, you see all those things, you hear all those things, you understand all those things, you embrace all those things. If all, after all of that, you step back at some point and say, you know what, eh, Christ just isn't for me. You have nowhere else to go. There will be no hope for you in eternity if Christ is not enough for you. That person is like a field that receives everything it needs to produce a crop, and yet it produces nothing but thorns. That field will be burned. Now this passage is heavy. This passage is stern. This passage is sobering. This passage at times is even confusing. And you may be thinking, all right, I've had enough, get me out of here, this is depressing, this is sad, it's a beautiful day outside, why are we talking about all this stuff? Well, the author of Hebrews understands. He's not oblivious to that, and so he offers some hope and encouragement in the following verses. Picking up in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the message in verses 9 through 12 is simple. He tells the audience... Take heart. I don't believe you have anything to fear. The motivation tactic here, if the first one was shame, 
this one could be characterized as encouragement. He tells these people that he doesn't believe they're perpetual spiritual babies. He does not believe that they're doomed for destruction like that useless field. He makes it clear that those who desire growth, those who desire to please God, those who have shown the love of God and the love of their fellow believers that these people have shown, those people have nothing to fear. So, his message to them, believe, stand firm, keep doing what you're doing, strive for growth, strive for maturity, lean into the grace of God that you might grow and bear fruit more and more and more. And look forward to the day when you will fully, once and for all, as your eyes see it, inherit the promises of salvation. So don't fear. Be patient. Trust and wait for that inheritance to come. Be faithful. Let's close out in verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So know this, audience. God is faithful. The first motivation, shame. The second motivation, encouragement. The third motivation we see here, assurance. He reminds them that God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, and he will be faithful to his promise to you too. Abraham had faith, Abraham was patient, and he received an inheritance. So you too have faith. You too be patient. And you too trust that your faith and your patience are not in vain, because you too will inherit God's promise. Don't believe me? Well, this is the God who doesn't lie to his people. This is the God who does not abandon his people. This is the God who keeps his word. And don't forget, this is the God who provided a great high priest for you, who went behind the curtain, who made an offering of himself that you could never offer, who made a perfect sacrifice, who went to the cross, his body broken and his blood shed on your behalf, the great high priest. This is the God that you believe in. This is the God that you trust. So be faithful and be patient. Hold fast. Stand firm. Even in those moments where your faithfulness wavers, just know that his doesn't. Even in those moments where your spiritual growth sputters, Understand that God is faithful. Now again, we're all motivated differently. 
And some of us may be motivated to do different things from hearing this passage. Some of us may hear this and leave here challenged to grow up because we step back and we realize, you know what? Yeah, I've kind of found myself in a spiritual period of laziness. I found myself a spiritual baby and I don't want to be a spiritual baby anymore. You may be challenged to grow up. Some of us may leave here challenged to re-examine our faith. Maybe I've been a little bit too comfortable as a spiritual baby. Maybe I need to reconsider whether or not I've actually believed. Some of us may leave here encouraged that even when my faithfulness seems weak, the one thing that I can hold on to is God's promise. And that is an anchor for my soul. And I am an heir of salvation. And I pray that every single one of us who are followers of Jesus this morning would leave here assured that God is faithful, that we can be patient, and because of what God has done on our behalf, we can hold fast. And I pray that we will. Let's pray right now. Father, faithfulness can be just an incredibly draining experience. We know from Scripture that you demand our total allegiance, that you demand our devotion, that you demand our love, that there is no other God before you. And yet, God, sometimes it can be so hard to be faithful. It can be such a challenge. And sometimes we're stuck in periods where we just don't understand how much longer we can be faithful. Sometimes we're stuck in dry spots. Sometimes we find ourselves in spiritual valleys and we just don't know if we'll ever get out of it. But God, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as our great high priest. I pray that we would never forget the core, basic, elementary principles of our faith. But I also pray that we would move on to deeper and more challenging things. I pray that you would instill in us a desire to grow, that you would give us a desire to mature, that you would give us a desire to hold our heads up and start crawling and start walking and start running, that we might serve you, that we might love you, that we might honor you more and more every single day. God, thank you for your grace and the fact that we have the privilege of being your people. That we have the honor of even having the opportunity to know you in the first place. Of having the opportunity to grow and having the promise from you that you are faithful. That you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you've given us your word, and that these things are sufficient to help us grow. And God, I pray that we would take this message that we've received, take this message of hope, take this message of love, take this message of grace, take this message of mercy that you've shown us, even in our dry spots, and that we would take it to anyone and everyone around us. I pray that we would take it to Christians who are struggling right now, who are in that valley, that they might have hope, that they might have encouragement. But I also pray that we would take this passage to those who maybe are a little bit too comfortable with that lack of spiritual growth, that we, re- we might remind them of what it is that they believe or maybe even encourage them to believe it again for the first time.
as strange as that sounds. God, again, we thank you for this passage, even though it's confusing, even though it's sobering. God, somehow you provide us encouragement through it, and I pray that you would do that this morning. We love you, we praise you, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.